Welcome to Mike's Notes, episode 38. Today, how startups fail. In the early to mid part of 2016, I wrote a short book called 20 Lessons from Startups That Failed. That book's available on Amazon as an ebook, and there'll be a link to it in the show notes. But today, I just wanted to talk about why I wrote that book and what some of the lessons from it were that startups could apply. Something that I didn't expect based on a project that was looking at technology startups that failed was how universal some of the ideas would be how common some of the pitfalls were for these small technology startups that were all over the world, but how the principles behind their success or their failure could be applied to many businesses or relationships or or lots of other things in life. For starters, I wanted this book to look at only failed startups, because for every Netflix, there's a blockbuster. For every Amazon, there's a Pets.com. For each Facebook, there's a MySpace. And I wanted to know, why do you look at only the successes? Don't the failures teach us just as much, too? Look at Blockbuster and Netflix. When Netflix began, they were notorious for a long new release queue, relied on the United States Postal Service, and didn't offer a significant cost savings for the average movie watcher. Yet... We study the lessons of Netflix and not Blockbuster. Why is that? That's the spirit and the challenge of the questions at hand. What can we learn from dead companies? The obstacle until now was what we ha- that it was hard to learn from the dead. Not anymore. In the same way that fossils are found more often when the animal dies and it is immediately buried, we have a fertile graveyard of failed companies technology startups, and thanks to blogging, especially platforms like Medium.com, the number of my tech startup failed and here's what happened type of articles is plentiful. These postmortems are also consistent. In combing through the reflections of 60 plus defunct startups, there were six patterns that clearly emerged. Startups failed because founders didn't understand their customers. Startups failed because founders managed money poorly. Startups failed because founders didn't have the correct strategy. Startups failed because founders lacked key skills. Startups failed because founders had bad luck. And startups failed because founders had the wrong founding team. And we'll look at one of these ideas today, how founders didn't understand their customers. But take one more step back about why it's valuable to look at these dead companies. In World War II, the Allied nations had a problem. They were losing too many aircraft. The Navy decided that the best solution would be to add more armor to the planes, but they wanted to know where and how so that the planes were still light enough to fly. The Navy took that question to Abraham Wall, the mathematician working for the war effort. Wald reasoned that the best place to put armor was where the surviving planes had not been punctured by bullet holes. What? put armor somewhere they hadn't been shot, like the engines? Yes, Walt explained. Even though the returning planes hadn't been shot in the engines, that's where the armor was needed most. The downed planes, that is the non-survivors, held the information about where the most vulnerable parts of the plane were, but the Allied nations were excluded from that information because these planes had been shot down over enemy territory. 
Wald reversed the equation and found the hidden answer. This kind, this kind of reverse reasoning applies for basketball players too. Earl the Goat Manigault was one of the most famous basketball players in New York City. Born at the same time as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who called Manigault one of the best basketball players in New York City. Every basketball fan knows of Kareem, few of Manigault. Why is that? But besides praising Manigault's game, Abdul-Jabbar also noted it had flaws. Earl couldn't shoot the ball from beyond 8 feet, Abdul-Jabbar said, and he wasn't interested in passing it. Earl lacked two important basketball skills. Manigault also ended up an addict. In high school, he was kicked out of the school and the team for smoking marijuana. The same year that Abdul-Jabbar entered the NBA, Manigault entered prison for possession of drugs. In this story of two New York City basketball players, there are things to learn from both of them. Study Abdul-Jabbar's path only, and you'll see that he took dance lessons and worked hard. You also see that he was fortunate to be traded and was in a good situation at UCLA and with the Los Angeles Lakers. So we can look at the winner. We can look at Abdul-Jabbar, who's our equivalent of Netflix, and study the things that he did. But we can also flip it around and avoid the things that Manigault did. If you don't have the core skills required for a pursuit, whether that means passing in the MBA or coding a website, you won't survive. Ditto if you become an addict or lack the social support um, that Abdul-Jabbar had. So looking at both sides, looking at the successes and the failures, is how we can really figure out um, what the valuable lessons are. One of those valuable lessons is when startups don't understand their customers. Customers can be hard to figure out, but figure out you must. There were five ways that founders failed to understand their customer base. First, founders started when there were no customers to begin with. Second, customers were part of a bureaucracy, which are really, really hard to sell to. Third, customers aren't asked the right questions. Fourth, founders focused on the wrong customers. And fifth, customers were never asked to pay. They never had a moment where they said, shut up and take my money. So number one, there were no customers to begin with. There may have been no more misleading line in cinema as the one by James Earl Jones's character in The Field of Dreams. He says, Ray, people will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up at your driveway not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. That idea, that ethos, that misleading line is that if you build it, they will come. The same idea exists in the idiom, if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a path to your door. These expressions are from stories, ones that are fairy tales, not history. The most convincing perspective of this came from the Amiloom postmortem. Their founder, Anders Hiss, wrote, quote, Ideals are what you want. Market needs are what other people want. We pursued our ideals, and we ignored what other people actually want. Idealism is selfish. Selling out to the market is generosity, end quote. You can certainly scratch your own itch as a founder, and we'll see later how dangerous it is if you don't, but that's only the first step. After that, you need to talk to your customers, and you need to talk to them nonstop. Wish We shared, which became Get Social, failed because they didn't know who their customers were, what they wanted, and what they could afford. These are questions that the founder of GetSocial suggested that you ask at the very start. 
So this is what he wrote. Quote, and I mean seriously early, before building a product, and before writing that first line of code, at all times during your journey, you should have a clear answer of, why am I doing this, and who am I building this for? He continued, you are not your users. Recently, there's been talk about Twitter, and what people should do with Twitter, and who should buy Twitter, and all this stuff about Twitter. And, and Chris Saka was on the This Week in Startups podcast with Jason Calacanis, and he said, part of Twitter's problem is that everyone that works at Twitter is a Twitter power user. That is, Twitter, Twitter's employees are not representative of the customers, and you need to talk to those customers. You need to figure out what people want and provide them. That's really the generosity. Another startup that failed this way was Colos. It was around 2011, and the founder of Colos saw an old a smartphone taped to a steering wheel so someone could play a racing game. And this is what he wrote in his postmortem. Why not combine the already established gaming wheel concept with an iPad, the most popular tablet out there? And then his four steps were come up with an idea, go to your bank and get a loan, build the idea in isolation, launch a Kickstarter campaign. Eventually, uh, the founder would talk to customers, but after these steps, it was far too late. Uh, you have to talk to them from the beginning and really dig into their needs and their desires and their wants. Homebly was to be an Airbnb for healthcare, but no one used it. Dinner was to be an on-demand recipe and ingredient service, but no one needed it. The founder wrote, quote, it was a classic case of a solution looking for a problem, end quote. Plancast was a social site for planning events, but no one wanted it. You must find customers. No matter how good an idea looks, your startup will only survive if it's used. The second way founders misread their customers was if the customers were part of a bureaucracy. Entering a bureaucracy is appealing but arduous. This makes sense. Bureaucracies are slow, often inefficient, and exist in large markets. They're like the dragon smog and the hobbit. They both sit on a great treasure, the market, but it's so hard to move them and defeat them that you'll often get burned if you try. Benjamin Wirtz tried to crack the bureaucracy nut by selling a customer management solution to large companies. He found out that it was a long process. This is what he wrote. Quote, Enterprises are as slow as their reputation. It will take 12 to 18 months to get your money if you know what you're doing. End quote. His sales cycle was too long. Another obstacle for entering a bureaucracy is to um, underestimate how good of a deal the big companies want. Big companies like Hershey or Microsoft or Apple want good deals so that they can pass on to their customers. Founder Keith Novak wrote, quote, To close deals with MoviePhone and Hershey's, we had to drop our prices so low that we barely broke even, end quote. This concession was after dealing with the long sales cycle. Amazon and Walmart don't have low prices because they pay their suppliers a lot. The hardest bureaucracy nut to crack might be the government, who can shut down a company with the stroke of a pen. Homejoy, the home cleaning startup, shut down because the number of lawsuits. Flowtab, an app to order drinks, saw the regulated industry of alcohol sales as a huge obstacle. Valor, a shared valet service, got tripped up by the need for licenses to operate in the city of San Francisco. If you want to climb the mountain of bureaucracy, make sure you know the lay of the land before you begin. The sales cycle is long and there is a strong status quo bias. Big companies demand good deals, and governments change laws slowly. It's not impossible, but it's certainly an uphill climb. The third way startups misread or um, misserved their customers was that their customers weren't asked the right questions. 
The founder who had the idea of putting an iPad on a steering wheel asked the wrong questions because he was too far along in the process. He wrote that his online survey was biased. It was like, you have these problems, right? And then later you talk to customers the harder it'll be to change. You'll be biased towards justifying your actions rather than finding true answers. Note, starting early doesn't guarantee success. Dinner, the meal ingredient delivery service, launched after 250 survey respondents, an alpha test group, and one-on-one interviews. With positive feedback, the founder launched the service and got three orders the first day and 12 the first week. Where was the torrent of people who liked it? They didn't like it enough. The founder wrote, Quote, this will be the number one lesson. We were not solving anyone's problems. I should have found that out in my initial market research. End quote. Like a safari guide uses a machete to clear a path of the jungle, a founder needs to do the same thing with his or her questions. The jungle in this case is civility, politeness, and reciprocity. Your early interviewees, especially if they are your friends and family, will not be honest with you unless you challenge them. The founder for dinner uh, ended his post-mortem with something like this. Quote, I'm not entirely excluding the possibility that one day, when Ocado trucks run out of gas, supermarket doors get blocked by red-hot lava, and restaurant waiters will, due to a mysterious leak of radioactive fumes emanating from commercial kitchen equipment, all be zombified and eat patrons' brains. Yes, in that case, I might be tempted to purchase a trial product from you once. Then I'll take a risk with the zombies, end quote. So this is all in jest, but the founder is making a good point that you really have to figure out with your questions, in what ways will customers use this product? Why will they order this meal ingredient service? Why will they take this step? Why will they order your product? It's not enough to say yes on a question, and you have to get the right questions to figure out when that's the case. So how do you do this? You do this by not selling to customers and instead by listening to customers. Many of the founders wrote in their postmortems that they should have spent more time listening. Uh, One founder wrote that he should have taken off his sales hat and put on his listening hat. Another said that if he would have listened to his customers, he would have solved two problems at once, a better roadmap and a list of sales leads. Um, Another founder wrote, quote, if you have that mindset, Then you focus your time on finding who, if anyone, wants the thing that you have mustered up in your head. And along the way, you adapt and tweak the original idea before you build anything. End quote. The earlier you can figure this out, the better off you'll be. False positives early on are very dangerous. One founder wrote, quote, When you're starting a company, anything resembling positive feedback looks like a delicious steak. End quote. And you have to be objective too. Anyone can get potential customers to say yes to any question when it's phrased a certain way. You have to be ruthless in pursuit of the truth. If you don't know what the right questions are, find someone who does. Investors can serve this role. Board of advisors can serve this role. Friends and family can serve this role if they will give you the truth and cut through some of the social norms that prevented the failed founders to asking the right questions and finding the right customers. The fourth way that founders made a mistake with their customers is they talked to people who weren't actually customers. Startups fail because founders fail to differentiate who was a customer and who wasn't. This is an easy mistake to make. Many groups of people will appear to be customers but won't actually be customers. Here are some people who founders found out were not actually their customers. Friends may not be your customers. This group is really tough to separate. If you're making something that scratches your own itch, then it makes sense that your peers would have the same itch. 
One founder put it this way, quote, the lean startup tells us to be data-driven, and so we were with our initial sample size of 100 homogenous pen friends, not smart. So you can't ask the people that are exactly like you if they'll buy your product. Your friends may not be your customers. Free version users may not be your customers. One founder uh, built features his users asked for, but then no one used them. What gives with that? He wrote, quote, Many campaigns signed up for trials. We invested new in new features based on some of the feedback we received. Unfortunately, most of them never used our platform for one key reason. They never paid for it. End quote. People who pay for something are more likely to use it. They're more likely to be investing in it with their time because they invested in it with their money. So free users may not be your customers. People who say that someone else will like your product may not be your customers. It's a big red flag that when someone praises your product, but they say that, oh, my sister would love this. Oh, this would be great for my uncle. Or, oh, my neighbor would really have a use for that. Anytime that someone is doing that, there should be red flags going off in your head, and those flags should be uh, trumpeting the sound that this person is being nice to you, but they don't like your product, so your product probably isn't that good, at least for them. Fans of your pitch deck may not be your customers. I was a little surprised in my research how often it came up that somebody's meeting went well, or their pitch deck was praised, or some other thing not related to their core business was given positive feedback, but the core business continued anyways. One uh, company founder joked that they got so much praise on their pitch deck that they thought they could go into a business making pitch deck. So fans of your pitch deck or your presentation or anyone who gives you compliments on something other than your core product probably is not a customer. People who praise the service may not be your customers. Flood, a social app newsreader for iOS, got a lot of media praise but ultimately shut down. Um, game developers of Tale of Tales wrote, quote, it's hard to deal with this intense feeling of disappointment in a context of glowing reviews and compliments and encouragements from players. A small group of people clearly deeply appreciated what we do and curse the economic system that doesn't allow us to be pleased with that, end quote. So just because people like your product doesn't mean people are going to pay for your product. So people who praise you in the media or who say nice things about it may not be your customers. How do you find real customers? One founder from Microcosm suggested, quote, get your potential customers to say no as soon as possible, end quote. So ask them to buy. Will you buy this product? Will you sign up for the first sample? Um, can I put a deposit down for yours? So get people to put money down. Those people are your customers. The fifth way founders messed up this customer relationship was they found customers that didn't pay. Free users bear further explanation here because failed companies consistently got this part wrong. The idea of making something that scales and then monetizing it with advertising or venture capital seems simple, but it doesn't always work that way. Navigating venture capital is a skill and one that we'll get to uh, in a later part, but uh, advertising also sounds good, but startups failed because they overestimated the value. You have to validate your idea by getting people to pay. Get to a shut up and take my money moment with them. The founder of Sonar wrote, quote, Enterprise companies should validate demand by asking customers to put their money where their mouths are, end quote. The founder of Teamometer noted that try it free is not a good validation model when you want people to pay later. 
quote, try it free and free trials in general are good if you know your product rocks and you will convert the customers. However, when you are testing demand, it is not the best because it invites people that are only curious, not really thinking of buying. Vocabulary Notebook was a cloud service that schools could buy for teachers. The service won many awards, it applied for and earned a trademark, and the founder spoke at international events. There were 30,000 users in 130 countries and 12 employees. None of those numbers mattered. The only number that mattered was paying customers, and for Vocabulary Notebook, that number was too low. There wasn't a single postmortem that read, we had too much recurring revenue. If you want customers to pay, they need to pay. Getting the right customers, figuring out who your customers are, asking your customers the right questions is, is not easy. If it were easy, there wouldn't have been 60 postmortems for me to read and easily find. I could have gone a lot deeper in the research and I could have uh, dug around and find, found more postmortems, more uh, pages of regret, more blog posts about what people should have done. But it was easy to find these postmortems on failed startups because starting a startup is hard, it's difficult, and part of that is answering these customer questions. If there was one thing that I could take away from my research, one big uh, leg of the stool that founders could get right, it's probably this one. It's understanding your customers and talking to them. Because once you start to understand your customers, a lot of the other problems go away. Startups fail because they had the wrong strategy, but if you talk to your customers, then you start to figure out and refine and hone a strategy that your customers want. Startups also fail because they manage money poorly, but if you get paying customers and you get reoccurring revenue, you have less money problems. Startups fail because Founders lack the right skills, but if you talk to customers and develop a vision and figure out what your customers want, you hire people that will solve those problems. There's a lot of things that, that failed startups did, but many of those things emanate from not understanding their customers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike Snows. Now why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then leave and take your book with you.